Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. I hope that today's show is going to be a, an eye-opener for a lot of you, but before we get into that, I want to uh, thank very much Ken Quiet-Hawk for his amazing introduction. You can find he and his wife, Deborah, on a number of CDs that, that utilize the Native American storytelling to, pr- to protect history and to enlighten um, anyone who listens to them, so do check it out, please. Tonight... Uh, we have an amazing guest, and, and I, I, I am hopeful that this will not be the only show I do with him. We welcome Tobias Jurchin to share with us his book, Alastair Crowley in India, The Secret Influence of Eastern Mysticism on Magic and the Occult. For those of you who have already heard some negative rumors about this man, it's about time that somebody shed some light upon them. This book shares excerpts from Crowley's unpublished diaries and details his travels in India, Burma, and Sri Lanka from 1901 to 1906. It reveals how Crowley incorporated what he learned in India. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to mispronounce words here, so please bear with me. Uh, Janya Yoga, uh, Vedantist, Tantric, and Buddhist philosophy into his own school of magic. He explores the world of theosophy, yogis, Hindu traditions, and the first Buddhist oh, Sangha to the West, as well as the first pioneering expeditions to K2 and the third highest mountain in Tibet uh, in 1901 and 1905. Early in his life, Alastair Crowley's disassociation from fundamentalist Christianity led him towards esoteric and magical spirituality. In 1901, he made the first of three voyages to the Indian subcontinent, searching for deeper knowledge and experience. His religious and magical system, Thelma, shows clear influence of his thorough experimental absorption in Indian mystical practices. And just a short bit about Tobias, having completed his 
23rd Book Commission, and I, probably there's more by now, Tobias is today internationally recognized for his insightful books on esoteric spiritual history, art, and philosophy. Accessible and scholarly, his works address believers and doubters alike and remarkably have simulated spiritual experiences in some readers. He successfully widened the appeal of so-called esoteric spirituality. His warm style and depth of knowledge have entertained many thousands of readers in the process. He's also a filmmaker, lecturer, poet, and musician. An amazing man who has written about another amazing man, and um, I welcome you to the show, Tobias. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, hello, Barbara. Pleased to join you on this journey. Well, it, you know, this is probably for me um, an, an enlightening journey as well, because, of course, I had heard rumors about Alistair Crawley and, and thought, oh, my goodness, this is going to be quite an adventure. And it turned out to be an amazing adventure. I ended up, after reading the book, respecting him greatly for a lot of the the, the work that he did in his journey for um, Gnosis, for enlightenment, for knowledge, for wisdom. Um, and, and today so many people are on that same kind of journey. And your book was fascinating in that he 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 did many things that all of us wish we had had the time and the energy to do because he had a rather nice background so he was able to finance a lot of his studies and his journeys uh to a degree that that not most of us have been able to he was able to gosh follow in Blavatsky's footsteps he was I I believe a a member of the Theosophic Society, the Golden Dawn Society, and then of course his own that 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 he studied that was was a ways of attaining a blending with the cosmic energy. I guess the 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 creation with blending with creation. Would you put it that way? I'm I'm not sure what he exactly was seeking, but I think a lot of us are on the same kind of journey. I think you could say cosmic consciousness, <laughs> certainly. Uh, the, it's the, his whole system is based on maximizing the potential of the individual to gain greater intelligence than would be if one didn't bother with that path. So it's, 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 it's really about expanding the mind to, to greater and greater awareness. And uh, that was always the goal of esotericism. You're trying to turn the lead of ordinary human experience into the gold of spiritual awareness and practical ability. So it can work depending on what your, what your particular gifts are. If you're going to be a mathematician, uh, his system will give you, uh, I think if you, if you follow it, you, you'll get uh, sharper intelligence and great, greater imaginative potential in that field. But also if you're going to be an architect or uh, a cook or whatever it is you're going to do, uh, you're going to, it, it's all about expanding the potential of the, of, the, of the human being to reach what he would call their true will as opposed to the ordinary ego consciousness, which is regarded as a rather small uh, a small thing which we mistake for the higher thing. And that's yeah, it, it, one of the messages. Yeah, it, is an, it is annoying from time to time. I, I think one of the major stumbling blocks for a lot of people is um, 
you know, the definition of of words um, changes as the frame of reference of society shifts and grows, hopefully. And he spoke of magic, and most people interpret that as black magic. And yet, in reading the book, I I began to realize that, that his understanding of the word magic was very different. Oh, yes. Oh, it's very important to understand what he meant by magic. His idea of magic is that of the ancient magi. I mean, we just had Christmas, and everyone's heard of the magi who come to worship Jesus as a baby in, in uh, Bethlehem. And this idea of, of the magi were people who were exceptionally uh, knowledgeable. And the word applies to a tribe of uh, ancient Iran, uh, Zoro- associated with the Zoroastrian religion, who were knowledgeable about science and astronomy and, and those things which uh, many of the things I suspect we've forgotten now. So when he talked about magic, he was talking about an ancient uh, approach to the universe. Uh, he was not talking about what is familiarly called black magic, which is uh, an, in, in some ways is a p- perversion of, of all kinds of knowledge. So mm-hmm. um, I would say he would say that science is successful magic. When magic is most successful, it becomes science. Everything we do in science today started as magic, including arithmetic, uh, algebra, and all these arts of, of number and assessing um, quantity and reality were originally uh, spheres of, of magic. Uh, when, when they reach a point of rationalization and repeatability, demonstrability, it, the magic becomes science. Uh, so what Crowley's interested in, if you like, is how to get the inspirational value into a form of knowledge. So he called his system, he defined it as the aim of religion, the method of science, which is a fascinating way of approaching this subject and immediately uh-huh. takes us away from our modern, our modern um, conflict we have between, uh, between religion and science. Um, people choose one side or the other or get confused in between. But uh, Crowley's system is, is, is to push the inspirational level of, of human beings to a point where it's, it's true knowledge. And to help him do that, he had great experience in what is called Janana Yoga. Uh, Janana Yoga is spiritual consciousness uh, yoga. It's about uh, a form of knowledge, spiritual knowledge. And the yoga that he was interested in, yoga means union, union with the highest, the highest potential of man, some call God. Um, the highest potential is, is what you're aiming at. So his, his magic is, is, you could call it self-realization, but the trouble with using words like self is most people cannot uh, separate the notion of self from their ordinary day-to-day um, conditioned awareness. The idea of the self in, in true magic is something you're going towards. It, it exists on another dimension, in fact. We in the material world are something of a projection. Of, uh, mm-hmm. a, a, of, of spiritual reality. So it's connecting this world and the greater cosmos. And the cosmos is understood as a projection of mind. Sorry, I'm going too fast, aren't I? <laughs> Sorry. No, no I, it, it's, it makes perfect sense. And so what, I'm, what, what, what you're explaining is exactly what people are looking for today. And, um, I think so, yes. <laughs> and, and what, what, the thing that that I got out of a lot of it is that it is a personal, unique journey that 
that you can be given tools, but the journey, how you use those tools will will determine what it is that you gather and, and maybe actually what, what it is you're actually seeking because everybody is different and unique. And um, Yes, I think that's true. Could I, could I just come in there and say, you know, yeah. people today argue about whether people are equal or not. You know, uh, some will say, well, nobody's equal. And uh, some will say, no, everybody is equal. Everybody's equal. Look, the fact is everybody's different. So the equality thing doesn't even come into it. You know, it's not that people are unequal or equal. They're different. And that diversity of possibility gives us enormous potential if we want to work together. And it also gives us great power if we, if those times when we have to work alone. Mhm. Well, and it, with many of these, um, with many of these processes, group energy does come in here, so that group energy can help to boost whatever it is you're doing and wherever it is you're going. Uh, but then there are times where where you need to have the the solitude in, in order to fine-tune it all. So I just, I, I was blown away by the fact that, among other things, that his school of Thelma was actually um, channeled philosophy through his wife, Rose. Is yeah, that um, it's, not Th- it's, it's, it's not Thelma, it's not Thelma, Barbara, it's Thelema. Thelema, Thelema. Is, a Greek, okay. is the Greek word. Yeah, it's the Greek word for will. That sounds prettier. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not a, it's not a girl's name. Um, funnily enough, yeah. you're the first person I've heard since the FBI to get that wrong. So <laughs> you're in good, interesting company. Uh, no, he, 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 had a, he had a group of followers in California in the 1940s and 30s, and they, they were busted at one point um, in, uh, by the FBI. And the, and the FBI report, which you can... Freedom of Information says, referred to them as the Church of Thelma. <laughs> I, used to, <laughs> I used to know a lady called Thelma. I wondered what she had to do with it. So, it's, no, it's Thelema. It's Thelema, which is a very well. important word in Crowley's system. Thelema is will, and, and it, has a, it has a gematrian number, which is 93, which is the same as love in Greek, agape. So, will and uh-huh. love are, identi- are identified in the system which brings well, he, us into you know, sort of our period. He just, I, 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 he, I don't know as much about him as you do, but he came across as somebody who was bordering on brilliant and not fitting into oh, society very well. He's over the border, I think. I think okay. he's over the border. <laughs> he's clearly a genius. But, um, yeah. In my, I wouldn't have spent so much of my time with his work, if I'd thought any less, you know, there are and interesting yeah. writers on the subject, you know, but there's then there's masters. But he's he's been so ill-treated over the last couple of decades. It just, um, and I'm not telling anyone that they should follow his whatever. I think I think it's important that people actually do their own research and learn about him from his own words, among other things. And that that's what's so amazing. Uh, you quote from his diary so often, and it's so obvious that he was so intent on reaching certain levels and on achieving certain things. And 
and he always came up having almost always having achieved it and yet finding it wanting and needing to you know to go further and find more and um yes I, in I'm a sorry, way yes. so in a way his his life had to be slightly frustrating because it, he did achieve that oneness once or more than once i i i don't uh i i couldn't really kind of pin it down as to how often he actually felt that oneness and that bliss of being the light. Yeah, it, 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 it occurred after a great deal of effort, first of all, in, uh, in um, late 1906. Uh-huh. Um, so he was then 31, wasn't he? So it was, it was uh, just before his uh, just before his thirty first birthday. Interestingly, um, well, yeah. But he he found that after once he'd achieved what what is called in the the yoga system samadhi, uh, in Hindu samadhi, which is slightly different to Buddhist samadhi. Um, samadhi being union with God. Frankly, that's the only translation you can come up with. But uh, be, you know, the use of the word God in these things is problematic because. It's, people can't agree on it fight over the meaning of it um, but it is a union with the highest or what he would say was the holy guardian angel uh, mm-hmm. and he used that expression he said because a child could understand it <laughs> <laughs> so uh, well he, he didn't dabble that in be, anything yeah I, I found no, that he, was, he didn't he dabble no, no no he plunged full head in the deep end Anywhere he went, um, it's, and it yes. felt. Barbara, you see what it is. Yeah, I just want to make this clear because it's so sure. misunderstood. Is is that he was a researcher into consciousness, and mm-hmm. that is pioneering work. It's consciousness research. It should be remembered that he was a Cambridge scholar, a University of Cambridge. He wasn't playing at it. He wasn't an amateur. He he was he wanted to take. Uh, spiritual and and uh, metaphysical issues onto the same level as Einstein took Newtonian physics that's the kind of level you're talking at and which is why it was so threatening i think to to religious authority then and and probably now uh, because he wanted to, he wanted to find the the factual basis of all the religions so that it could be made available for every person to to seek that union uh, themselves and this was threatening, of course, to organize religion, which always puts uh, something between you and God, namely the preacher or the book mm-hmm. or the system or the consciousness of sin or all these sorts of things. So he, he was a real pioneer. Oh, gosh, yeah. And it, mm. where, did, where did it start? I mean, I certainly when he was in school, he was pulling away from... Um, Traditional Christianity, and um, yeah, his, his father, his father was uh, his father was an independently wealthy preacher of exclusive fundamentalist religion. I mean, he would have given, uh, he would have probably made Billy Graham feel that uh, he didn't know his Bible quite well enough. His father, he was quite extraordinary character. His father, um, and he used to take his son with him, and he'd sort of he'd meet men on the road. And uh, he'd say things like, this is 
Crowley's father said things, what are you going to do after you've been digging the road? And they said, well, I'll probably go home. And he said, what are you going to do then? And he'd take them through this until they finally got to the end of their lives. They'd say, and what are you going to do then? And uh, by which time he'd, they were enthralled and he'd invite them to, to a meeting. And he always spoke very quietly and with no fuss at all. So Crowley knew how to evangelize. He knew the evangelical uh -huh. system and he knew... He knew, as he said, how easy it was to get a crowd worked up into a state, you know, where they thought they were being touched by the Holy Spirit or what have you. He, I mean, he went to see Billy Sunday, uh, the American evangelist, when he lived in America for five years, uh, 1914, 1919. Um, and he said, my father could have done this uh, much easier and with a considerably less noise. So he had a, a, a fundamentalist Christian upbringing, was brought up to believe that every single word of the Bible was the absolute utterance of God himself without it, barely an intermediary. Uh, apparently the prophet simply wrote down from direct dictation. Um, in English, you would have thought, because they particularly keen on the King James Bible. So he, un he knew what Christianity was, root and branch. He'd got that sorted. Uh, but he found that after his father, his father died when he was, he was 12 years old, and he came under the care of his uncle, who was an, also an evangelical, but much more bigoted than even his, his father. And his mother also had a very warped idea of religion and how to bring up a child. They sent him to a dreadful school where he was persecuted. And Crowley started rebelling. And as he'd heard so much about the book of Revelation and the, and the, the beast and all this sort of stuff, um, uh, his mother, his mother uh, caught him doing something at some point, and she said, you know, you're the beast, you know. And he said, all right, I'm the beast. And that sort of name stuck because somebody once said to him, why do you call yourself the beast? And he said, well, my mother called me the beast. <laughs> so that, you've got to understand that spirit. And as he'd read that the, uh, the beast was going to come at a certain point and see the end of the kind of Christianity which was torturing him, he was quite happy to go along with Aid in mind being the beast. If he could end the system of moral and spiritual torture to which he felt he'd been subjected by the bigotry uh, and, uh, and, and uh, totally unspiritual kind of belief, um, uh, obsession with sin, all sex is sin, you know, sex is the weakness of mankind, it's our utter downfall without, you know, it's, uh, and all of that. Um, very much the thing that people went through in the West in the 60s and got some of it out of our system about the utter guilt at having genitals, you know, the utter guilt at having sexual feelings. He rebelled. He said, this, this, these things which they're trying to suppress are actually vital for spiritual development. And I think that also created a great deal of opposition. We're talking about uh, before the First World War. Uh, we're talking yeah. about Amy Semple Thurston kind of time. And, uh, you know, if you imagine what your great-great-great-grandmother uh, was, was taught, you know, in terms of how to live <laughs> and what, what yeah. to wear. And uh, you know, he, that's what he was rebelling against. Um, and, of course, now the whole culture's rebelled against that. Um, mm -hmm. We haven't got it right. We, we, ha we don't understand what he meant by uh, the spiritualization of sex. For him, sex, sex was uh, a spiritual uh, means of uniting oneself with the spiritual world par excellence. And mm -hmm. he hated what he called filth. 
Well, he would always call it filth if people were just going for kicks, you know, pure physical stimulus. He would he called that filth. For him, the ecstasy of the sexual moment was religious, and he wasn't kidding about that. He wasn't he wasn't saying it's like religion. For him, it was. And he, amazing. He's a, yeah. You know, he 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 did things that appeared to be um, impulsive, and and yet they didn't seem impulsive at all. I mean, I can't remember how long, but he only knew his wife for a number of weeks before they married. Oh, I think it may have been less than that, in actual fact. Yes. Well, she was in trouble. Oh. Um, she was she was the sister. No, I don't mean that way. She was the sister <laughs> of. Uh, he, he he was he loved stories of knights who rescued ladies. This sort of thing. He'd been brought up on on Arthurian literature, um, and the Holy Grail and that stuff like that. And um, his she his his wife to be Rose was in fact his one of his best friend's sisters. But she she was a, quite a you'd say wayward lady. She'd she'd been married already. Um, her husband had, had died in South Africa. She'd, she was involved with two men, one of whom uh, she'd promised to marry, but she realized it was a great mistake, and she was trying to get out of that. And then there was another guy she thought she wanted to go off with, but that she wasn't sure about that. Anyway, she confided in Alistair, her, her brother's friend, and he said, look, I'll get you out of this. We'll get married, and, and then you can go and do what you like. <laughs> Oh, God. He, said, he said, "Don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll just go. We'll, we'll go up to the registrar. He was living in Scotland at the time. We'll go up to the registrar, get married. So that'll deal with the person who, who thinks he wants to marry you. So he'll go off, and you can go off with your, the friend that you really fancy." And she said, "All right." They went and got married, and they found within a week they were madly in love with each other. It's quite a great story, really. Make a good film, oh, just wow. that story alone. So, Absolutely. and she then became. She turned out she had clear, clear audience capacities. She had a, a, an ability to to hear, you know, beyond the normal. Uh-huh. And um, it was it was she who got him into the whole adventure in Cairo. That uh, after he'd been in India, he they, he met her. Then they went back to India together for their honeymoon in Sri Lanka. And on the way back to Cairo, he had this amazing experience in 1904. And uh, where he received what what has since been called the Book of the Law, uh, which is the sort of cornerstone of uh, Crowleyan ethics, and uh, quite incredible. I mean, it was his wife who who got him going on that. She said, "They're waiting for you. They are waiting for you." Quite, <laughs> and he said he he been, he'd been very skeptical, philosophical, intellectual type. Just said, "You know, pull the other one. You know, you must be joking. What, what are you talking about? They're waiting for you." She says, "No, no, come with me. Come with me." And, uh, and and there's this wonderful story of how uh, she got him finally to think he did all sorts of tests to check whether she was uh, kidding herself or him, and uh, he was amazed by that something was happening, something was really going on there. I, and that was just, that was you about, know, I, uh, yeah. I, I'm I'm so impressed by all that he did in his search. I mean, usually. Now you can get online and you can look at stuff, but but that was not the case in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I mean, he was thoroughly. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure how far he went into theosophy, but he certainly studied it quite a bit. He liked, Again, he liked, he, yeah, 
he liked he liked he liked uh, he respected um, Helena Blavatsky, but he wasn't too uh-huh. keen on her followers. Um, and he met actually when he was coming back from Cairo, he met Annie Besant uh, on the ship going back to England, and they had a had a chat. Um, and he uh-huh. but he saw himself and came to see himself certainly by the twenties and really before that as the successor of Blavatsky. He felt Blavatsky had started something. But her followers didn't know where to take it because they did. He felt they didn't have the authority, and um, and of course the Theosophical Society split up into all different groups. Um, oh yeah. I mean, I think I think I think things now in the Theosophical Order are a lot uh, friendlier, and I think there's over the century and more there's there's more openness uh, nowadays. But there's still this absolutely super emphasis on Indian religion. Um, whereas Crowley was very also interested in what we call the Western esoteric tradition. But he wanted to unite the West and the East, and he didn't think the theosophical system uh, quite understood how that could be done. Um, He thought that the people were too ready to confuse Nirvana, for example, the Buddhist idea of Nirvana, with the Christian heaven, and they presented Uh a kind of sentimental view, a sentimental view of Buddhism. He studied, as you see, if you read my book, you'll see he really went to the root of Buddhism. He wanted to know what, whatever Buddha knew, he wanted to know it inside out. Uh, so and, he became a Buddhist. You know, I, I, I think that, that what impressed me tremendously was, especially when, when he, he got into the Eastern um, modalities, that the element of meditation was crucial. And in in what I've experienced today and, and over the last 50 years is the element of meditation has become more and more and more acknowledged and accepted as a form of putting yourself on that journey towards cosmic consciousness. And uh, he, he, he did it to the extreme. And... When you when you listen to what he's writing in his journals about you know being interrupted and getting there and interrupted and getting there and interrupted, I mean he was this 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 was a man of such amazing intensity. I would imagine he had a piercing sight that his eyes would pierce right through you. Oh, I think I think that's 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 true. If he wanted to, yes, mm-hmm. he didn't. Um... He, he, as he went on, he didn't. He didn't um, regale everybody he met with, you know, his belief system. If people showed an interest and was uh-huh. a serious interest, he would he would speak to them, and they were often astonished because they thought he was just a, you know, sporty sporty character who liked the open air and a good laugh because he was an incredibly funny man and uh, was constantly pulling people's legs and telling jokes. Um, but if he was if he was serious, he he would he would open up. And one of his longest friend, longest standing friends, Gerald York, said that it, the longer you were with him, he said you realised he was a, a jivan mukta. He was a liberated spirit. And because of that, mm-hmm. when he explained something, you could go there with him. You could feel the consciousness that actually what it felt like to understand what he was referring to. He doesn't just didn't tell you something. He almost he op- and he he could open people's minds. If they were willing to have them open, of course. Uh, oh, there are some people that <laughs> don't want to open <laughs> their minds. Far, far too uncomfortable uh, an experience. They might find out how but, small their mind was. Well, with with all of this 
other material that he dealt with constantly. I mean, he was fortunate enough to be able to finance himself to do this investigation and this study and this stretching of himself. He also climbed mountains. How did yeah. he enter into this? Was the climbing of, of mountains um, another form of challenging himself, or was it um, sort of significant as to his journey within, with the journey without? Where did the mountain climbing come from? Well, you're right. It, it, there is an analogy, isn't there, between going within to the depths and going to the heights physically. So that, mm-hmm. that I think, was a very healthy thing, that he balanced his inner search with, the, with living in the world and matching himself up against the highest peaks. He had the highest climbing record for anyone on a mountain for many years, uh, which he achieved on K2, uh, which any serious mountaineer today will tell you is actually in many ways more difficult a mountain to climb than Everest. Uh, but they did it without oxygen. Where did it come from? He was bullied at school terribly. And uh, he, had, he had stomach problems and kidney problems. And when the kids at the school found out about it, they'd kick him in his stomach or in his kidneys to cause him grief. And he nearly died. And so he, he met a, a very famous British uh, doctor called Dr. Lister, who invented the whole thing about, um, didn't invent it, but developed the whole thing about uh, cleanliness in hospitals and, and uh, you know, the diseases were being spread by bacteria and Lister. Very fair. Anyway, Lister took him on, on walks into, into the highlands of Scotland and he started to get healthier. And the more he did it, the better he felt. And by the 1890s, early 1890s, he was one of the greatest climbers in England already. And then he went to the Alps. He climbed the Eiger single-handed when he was about 18. You know, I mean, they made movies about wow. Clint Eastwood climbing you know, with, with all this equipment. He went up without ropes on his own. You know, he was amazing. And then he, he was best friends with the best climber in England, which was Oscar Eckenstein. And together they said, right, well, let's do Mexico. So in 1900, he went to Mexico with Eckenstein and spent 1900 to 1901 climbing the, the highest peaks in, in Mexico. And then they said, well, next year, let's, let's do the big, bigger one we can find, the best. And they went for K2. And the 1902 expedition to K2 was a totally pioneering, first time a full attempt had ever been made on K2. And had they not had the most extraordinarily bad weather, I mean, he was stuck up on the mountain for, for days and days and days, stuck in uh, baby. Well, you wouldn't even put a person in these tents these days. They were, the conditions were so bad. Uh, but they, they got the highest climbing record. And then two, uh, three years later, he went to Kangchenjunga, Kangchenjunga, which is the third uh, highest mountain in India. And they nearly got that as well. Uh, and that's on the uh, Sikkim-Nepali border. Um, and you, you can see it from Darjeeling in the distance. But it's a, the, the, the five peaks. Uh, but it had never been uh, attempted seriously before. And I don't think it was climbed anyway until the mid-50s. And this was, yeah. he was climbing 50 years ago. So he's a great player. He then went to New York in 1906 and tried to get money to go back to the Himalayas because he, he said there's great possibilities for exploring and for nature, for gathering rare plants and uh, uh-huh. making tests about uh, all sorts of scientific tests which he included in the regiment and nobody in New York was interested absolutely nobody, they just thought mountaineering was ludicrous uh, 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 there's no interest, couldn't get any interest at all uh, to get to get another expedition 
But uh, every time he, he got a bit flabby, which he did because he enjoyed his food, he'd, he'd go off mountaineering or he walked across the deserts in North Africa. Um, he, or he was he was uh, he was he was quite a man. I mean, phys physically he was strong, and uh, it wasn't somebody who easily messed with him. And yet he had also a very feminine nature as well. Well, yes, just, out just out of curiosity, <laughs> is that Dr. Lister at all connected to Listerine? Yes, that's the origin of Listerine. Yes, I think so. Oh, okay. I'm trying all to right, think of it. I'm, I'm trying to think of the, the, the basic term for it's basically about um, hygiene in hospitals. There's a particular word for the for it as a, as a complete study. It's that whole thing about. Anyway, he knew. Oh, wow. He also knew Dr. Moore. He knew Dr. Maudsley, who was the one of the great founders of psychiatry in in England. The Maudsley Hospital's still going. Uh, he uh -huh. he knew the top scientists. He knew the top scientists of the world when he was in Berlin in 1930-31. He knew Einstein and uh, Schrödinger. Yeah, he was he was he was no onion. He wasn't like some sort of new age freak who, who, who in the sense of somebody who escaped from science by delving into magic, which is always the way people particularize. People who are interested in in spiritual, so-called occultism or magic. His whole uh -huh. interest was was knowledge per se. Let's, but he was particularly interested in consciousness. And of course, nowadays, uh, consciousness research is one of the cutting-edge areas of, of of psychology and uh, science generally. What is the mind? What is what, well, you know? Here. Is there a limit to mind? Well, so actually, he really was an anachronism, and if oh, he, yes. he's out on his own. He, yeah, uh, it's just it blows your mind. He also has was it was it um, typhus that he had? Yeah, what uh, he he caught cholera. He he had. Um, oh, he had malaria. He he got malaria. Malaria. Yeah, malaria was okay. Malaria, which was you know most people who went to to the far east in those days uh, were almost certain to get some sort of malarial infection. Uh, but the trouble with malaria, as you may know, is it comes back at different times yeah. in your life, even if you're not there, as it were. I mean, it's, it's, it comes from a mosquito, uh, a mosquito mm -hmm. injecting the stuff into well, you. So he did suffer a bit there. Uh, well, the worst thing he suffered from was bronchitis and, uh, and asthma. That was his biggest suffering in his whole life. And that's why he first took heroin, which was recommended by his doctor, Dr. Batty Shaw of Harley uh -huh. Street, London. Uh, the, the only definite amelioration for serious asthma in those days was to give people heroin, can you imagine? So they, well, naturally and, they became addicted. And, well, and a lot of the things that he partook of, the hashish, the, the cocaine, the heroin... The laudlum was it was they were all accepted substances at that time they weren't outlawed or anything like that i don't believe so that that's true so uh, that his, he used to get them from the pharmacist you could go to winneray yeah. ep ep winneray's in london and pick up your stuff <laughs> there was a it was a respectable yeah. shop in piccadilly well it just seems to me that you know they they go to the fact that he was a drug addict uh, Yes and no. I mean, he utilized these at a time when they were not outlawed. He utilized them for health and for exploration of consciousness. But but it wasn't like he was a junkie on the street corner. He was utilizing them to get somewhere. And I don't I don't 
recommend that approach for people, but during that time frame, it was an accepted use. And and yeah, he, one shouldn't he, be condemned. He got, in, he, he got into um, yeah, he got into uh, he got into some trouble with with heroin later on. Um, sorry, just a second. Something was funny. Um, he got into some trouble later on uh, with heroin, and, and it, it took him about a year or two to, to get off it completely, which he did by by effort of will. And um, because of his asthma, it was it was the best. Ki- oh, excuse me, minute. somebody's just saying. Sorry, I'm very busy at the moment. All right. Um, yeah, uh, he got off by effort of will. Uh, he went through a period in the ni- 1922 when he took too much cocaine. And uh, I think that led to about sort of a few months of sort of fairly fairly mad goings on. Um, but again, he 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 gone it, he got off it, and he didn't bother with it afterwards. I think he says in, in his diary in 1924, these things are just emergency rations. And um, uh-huh. in, in you know, but when it came to the psychedelics, which is mescaline, he was one of the first people to experiment with peyote uh, in a period when nobody had even heard of it. I mean, long, long ah. before R. Gordon Watson and all that, before you ever heard of Carlos Castaneda, long, long before. He'd experimented with peyote, um, as now called mescaline, the mescal. And uh-huh. he, but he always, took, he always took it heavily diluted and would only take it. He was very careful with the measurements and he would record them scientifically, how, how much he would take, whether it would have an effect or not. I mean, he... he did he ever... He was fascinated. Did he ever... Yeah. I'm curious. Did he ever experiment with ayahuasca? No, I don't think so. Uh, but uh, he, he, I think he, he would have been interested for sure. I don't think it was yeah. sort of in the, the. I don't think there was as it were a market for that at the time. Um, no, well, there's actually no market for it now. You have to, you know, go to the source, so to speak. What I'm saying. What I'm saying. Um, is I don't. I don't think it was particularly. I don't think it was, it was particularly available. I think peyote was sufficient. I think people who've uh-huh. taken ayahuasca anyway today, um, the trouble with ayahuasca, as I understand it, is there's a very, very great degree of loss of control. In other words, you can't yeah. handle the, the, vis- the visions. You've got to go with them or, or you know, they, they're overpowering. Um, yeah, so I understand, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, there's, there is, they're problematic in, in that way. And uh, I don't well, think you'd have enjoyed throwing up and all that. <laughs> no. Well, I do. I do. I do remember seeing in his diary um, that you have in the book. Um, you know, five drops here, three drops here. You know, it, mm. it, being very conscious of the effects of it. I, I want to go back just a second because you got me past the mountaineering. Um, in your book, you have pictures of the tents, pictures of the camps. I, I mean, when you see it, you think, oh, my God, why would anybody voluntarily punish themselves like this? I mean, the, and, and the, they had, I think at one point you said that, you know, there were three or four men that were on the expedition and, and that there were 70 um, helpers that, that, you know, carried the, carried the material the that they were going to be taking. Force, and, yeah. Yeah, and and pictures of them. I mean, my gosh, they had rags wrapped wrapped around their feet. They weren't even wearing shoes, some of them. And to think that they were 
you know, jauntingly going up a mountaintop and past over glaciers and all sorts of stuff, it boggles the mind that, that anyone in their right mind would do that. I mean, seriously. And and yet he wrote some of the prettiest poetry, you know. <laughs> he wrote, he wrote, he wrote, he wrote, he, he was up on K2 in his tent uh, in hideous winds, uh, sort of 20,000, 20, 22,000 feet uh, above sea level. And he, he was writing a, a poem called The Earl's Quest in his tent. It's quite amazing. Okay. Uh, he's, the man he went up to K2 with said, you must leave your books behind when we get to the mountain. Crowley said, on no con- account will I not carry my books up that mountain. He says, because I will stay sane while you not go mad. Yes. <laughs> he said I, he, he I, understood that people would lose their minds on the mountain because of the scale. Is Unless you've actually been up seriously on a mountain and in serious danger, that's something I have experienced, uh, you have no can never have an eye, any idea what nature is all about uh, when it comes to its, its extraordinary power and overwhelming power. He actually got a, a, a satisfaction from being overwhelmed by nature. He was not mentally overwhelmed by it, but it, for him to, for man to realize his, as it were, insignificance close to nature was for him a healthy experience. You know, he thought a lot oh, of people yeah. should have that, you know. They, they no, think he, You're, I, often hear, I often hear this thing today, you know, man has conquered nature. I always laugh when I hear that. Uh, we could oh, be yeah. snuffed out <laughs> in a second. In a heartbeat. You know, it's a, yes. it's, absolutely. I mean, for thousands of years, we've had to placate the gods uh, or laws of nature with sacrifices and whatnot and, and uh, prayers and, and hymns and please give us a new harvest and please let the sun come up tomorrow morning and so on. We now know the sun's going to come up anyway. Um, uh, but be, apparently you can still pray for rain with some success if you know what you're doing. Uh, I, I wonder how, how regularly that might work. But uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is nature is clearly wanted to understand whether or not there was an intelligence in nature. This is one of the things he was interested in. And uh, he came to the conclusion in India that nature is neither good nor bad. It's just, it is what he called fatal. There is a fatality Uh about it. Meaning, several meanings of that is one is there's a destiny. In other words, once you start off a process, it's going to go on whether you like it or not. If Uh if If you set up a wave in nature... Uh, you, once you've set it up, it will realize itself. You know, you can't stop it once it's set up. That's that's yeah, that's, that's the meaning uh, of karma. Yeah, well, I, I was just going to say, um, I, I recognize that when pregnant and hearing other women scream, saying, "Well, if it hurts that much, I'm not doing it," and have some somebody said to me, "You you started this process. You have no choice but to finish it." <laughs> Yes, right. Absolutely. Well, well said. Yes, yeah, very true. true. Yeah, and at the moment, Um, at that moment, it didn't hurt that bad. But after a while, I began to realize, oh my, Um, and and the element of karma comes in here too. And you know, so many people talk about karma and and it's energy, and you know, not good or bad. It's energy, and it's how you choose to utilize it or manifest it. And once you start, you're committed. And he was just, he was phenomenal. I mean, people should read his poetry and you'll know that there was no horrible 
demonology connected to this man. Couldn't possibly be. Couldn't possibly had, be I'd that been, kind of. I'd been warned off when I was a student. When I was a student at Oxford, now oh, how many years ago? Uh, nearly forty years ago. Um, uh, well, it was about 40 anyway, but a little bit of that. Um, I was warned off, you know, people said, oh, don't mess with Crowley, you know, it's evil, you'll you'll get all kinds of stuff. And you've got all this fear was rammed into your head. And I used to suffer for my interest. I knew there was something worthwhile in it, but I'd also uh-huh. suffer a sort of, oh, you know, am I wise? And, and the, the mind is very good at sending uh, negative signals. I mean, it's like everyone's afraid sure. of the dark if they haven't got a light. They haven't got a light switch, and they're not quite sure what's in front of them. That's natural. But it wasn't until I got to grips with his private papers and diaries, which I've been very very lucky to be able to use in these, these books because they're unpublished. I went through page after page after page of his writings from, the, from right through his life, and never once, never once did I have a sort of feeling of, a pathological insanity or the kind of mentality of, of a murderer or a, a person who wanted to harm other people or who was, you know, mentally sick or was, you know, had lost his mind. Any, there was never, ever a hint. There was always a, a, a pleasing, humorous rationalism. And, uh, uh-huh. and he put, you know, he calmed, he calmed a lot of people down. You know, he, he was, you, you've, you've misunderstood this. You've misunderstood we come into this world still in our Western culture, still parts of our thinking and our brains belong in the Middle Ages. We still oh, yeah. don't need much encu- we still don't need a lot of encouragement to condemn somebody as satanic, uh, to fear evil, to be afraid of the dark, to think about witches, demons, what's gonna happen to us when we are we going to hell. We all of that is still around, even in the scientific you know, people drive a modern car, but they am, they're not modern behind the eyes you know that takes that takes uh, true education and and to some degree initiation um but well, you know people people a- uh, people are so afraid you know this is one of the things about crowley he was not a fearful character he could, he said he was cowardly but every time he felt cowardice he wanted to he wanted to match himself up against his fear and overcome it uh-huh. and that's and that that's another reason he climbed mountains i think was to overcome his own resistance, and that's why he went so far. I think with things he wanted to, he wanted to defeat his weakness. Now, some people well, said he, no, he didn't defeat his weakness. He just gave into it. I no, but I don't I, believe I that he, at all. I think he was I, determined. I, I, he said fear is failure. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, and you know, with with all of the different organizations that he was a part of, he didn't investigate them. He immersed himself in them. He became a part of them. Um, the Office, the Blavatsky material, um, I, I do believe that it was, I'm not sure, but I, was he a Mason? I think he was He was a Mason as well. Yeah, and he, he, did, then, he did become, become a Mason at one point, yeah. Yeah, and, and then the, the, um, the Society for the Golden Dawn as well. Um, all of these, organizations he he didn't just research and and you know take what he needed and whatever he became immersed in them he experienced them and he took what worked for him and he moved on and um i'm impressed uh, i amazingly impressed at 
his intensity and his dedication to to gather what he needed for for the journey that he was on. Um, and, and it went on course, all his, it went on all his life, Barbara. It went on all his life. He he never stopped. He never. I think one friend in the 1930s said he only ever saw him once depressed, feeling that maybe you know he'd come to the end of the line. Only once he said, and he very soon recovered from it. Uh, even though he 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 was he was he was given the most incredible. I mean, he couldn't get back to America after 1920 because J. Edgar Hoover who was running the Bureau of Investigation, uh, was suspicious that he was some sort of British spy. He couldn't get back to America and see his friends or carry on with his work. He was kind of stuck. He was kicked out of Italy by Mussolini. I mean, look at his record. Very interesting. He's kicked out of Italy by Mussolini. He's kicked out of France by fascist policemen. <laughs> and, he's, and he can't get back into America because of J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> Good grief. I mean, yeah, amazing, isn't it? So I always say this about Freemasonry. Look in the countries where it's banned and you'll see what, where the Freemasons are a good or bad thing. You know, you'll find where you can get shot for it in Iraq or Iran. You know, all oh, the Masons yeah. were hanged uh, when the Ayatollah came in. So uh, I, I look, where, where, uh, where Crowley was kicked out of, look at look what was behind it. You know, it's very interesting. And, and often it was his journey and, and his dedication to learning. I mean, this man just wanted to learn. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I, I think that it's, it's a goal that most of us have. Not all of us are able to commit ourselves to the journey as he was, but, but still a journey nonetheless. I mean, uh, to, to go I mean, into... Everyone could, everyone could do something. Oh sure, but but I mean, come on, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, yoga, uh, all of these different tools that he learned, that he stretched himself into. Um, I, w- I would imagine they didn't warp his brain; they made it sharper. And and you know, in a way, he must have, towards the end of his life, felt kind of trapped in a reality that he didn't feel he really belonged in anymore. Yeah, I think yes and no to that. Certainly, insofar as he was constantly having to deal with you know, the the average mind, um, and which very shows very little interest of expanding and a lot of interest in, in fact, losing what little there is. Um, most people waste we all waste our minds in all sorts of ways at, at various points and often we're encouraged to do so we prefer entertainment to enter attainment as i call it we uh, want to enter something to attain but uh, it's much easier to be distracted and uh, it's easy to rule people of course who are completely distracted so it's in the interests of government to keep people in a state of sort of suspended animation and uh you know, it's uh, Crowley, Crowley. Crowley loved life, though he did love life. He got. He said it's damned hard to get any true joy out of this life, but it's not impossible. <laughs> he, wasn't, he didn't. He said. He said of Buddha. You know, he said. He, he said uh, Buddha was cured of the universal sorrow when he went out for a drink with the universal joke. Oh, That's yeah. very Crowley. Because <laughs> so, you do get. You very. can. Anyone who thinks that anyone who thinks about life can very 
quickly succumbed to what he called the trance of sorrow. Oh, God, everyone's going to die. Isn't it miserable? Um, all good things come to an end. Um, great, great things are disparate. John Lennon was murdered. Mahatma Gandhi shot, etc., etc. You know, there's no hope. What's the point? We can all succumb to this trance of sorrow. And he said, well, yes, it's, it, it is miserable, but it is not impossible to enjoy yourself. So it's, it can't, it's not all black. And white magic is grabbing onto the white part, the, the, the potential of man, uh, to, to draw, draw back the shadows of our fears and improve our lives. And if you think of the benefits of science, as well as the dangers, but if you think of the benefits of science and how all our lives have become brighter, even though uh-huh. you know we got used to a lot of it now. But there are so many things. You, people, you know, not very long ago, you had to go to bed at you know when the sun went down because you probably didn't have enough money to pay for an oil lamp. You had to get up with the sun. It was things were tough. Now things are easier now, and people could have more time to develop their inner life. But what do they do? No, they call it leisure time. So any time when they're not working, they just want to be playing. Well, play is very important, uh, but but it, it, so so is developing your 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 spirit and coming to know yourself. What, if we gave as much his... time to that as we do to entertainment, oh. we'd have a wiser world, wouldn't we? And we'd oh, be we less would, prone yeah. to expect, and we'd be less prone to expect politicians to do all our dreams for us. Oh please, um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, what was, you just mentioned a, a trigger word for me in that spirit. What was his philosophy on the spirit? D- did he believe in reincarnation? Did he believe in... Um... He did, re- yes, okay. He did, he, 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 he said that, uh, I think his view on reincarnation overall was he personally felt that he had uh, been through other lives, um, but always there was something which was unique in that life. In other words, it wasn't a complete transformation, but there was something going through it. Um, and he, he relived some of these lives through deep Samasati meditations, especially when he was in America okay. in New Hampshire and, and later in, um, in New York, just outside he went, I'm trying to think, I can't remember the name of the little bit outside. It used, it used to be a fun fair there. Anyway, there was a whatever. Um, but he, he had a deep meditation and went through various lives. But he said he wouldn't insist on it as a doctrine. In other words, he wouldn't say to somebody, you must believe in med- uh, reincarnation. It's true. He said it might. He, always, uh, he was always prepared to accept it might be a, an inward fantasy. But for him, it, uh-huh. but for him he, he, felt, he felt it was true. He regarded the body as a vehicle. And when yeah. the vehicles had enough, you leave it and you go into another vehicle. And if you're fully developed, like the Buddha, you will want to come back to Earth to help people out, even if you're heading for the the great Nirvana. You might say, mm-hmm. "Yes, well, I'll I'll come back and do more," and that would be a true. Uh, that is about the most noble thing you could think of is to go through this this uh, trial of life again. Um, so I can I can understand that. I, I personally don't have a strong view about reincarnation. But uh, I, so many people I know and have met have strong feelings about it, which I respect. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just up to the individual, I guess, and, and uh, what they're comfortable with. Everybody has their own inner truths. And, um, you know, you have, 
I feel you have to honor those truths, and even if they aren't yours. And, you know, there's no way you're going to convince somebody your method because it's your method. And uh, I, I just think that, that I kept trying to find where all of the, the stuff was that everybody talked about, and I couldn't find it. So, so now it's a matter of wanting to get the word out there that, that you know, before you, before you follow the, the um, accusations of someone, you know, check out where they came from, check out, do some research, don't automatically say, oh, evil, 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 because um, this man had more beauty in him than anything else. He was just a very dedicated, almost fanatical person who was, searching for something that he knew was there and he, he was trying to find it. I, I wanted to ask also, I know his first child died early. His second daughter, um, how, long did she, how, how long did she live and, and did she carry on any of his work? No. Uh, Lola Zaza, his second daughter, uh, become, uh-huh. became estranged uh, from him because when his, his wife, Rose, sadly became uh, an alcoholic, and entered dementia, and uh, oh, he divorced wow. her um, because he, he he could no longer take responsibility for her. I mean, she was just getting through too so much drink, and um, they made he made an arrangement with her family, and she went to live with her family and took the daughter with her to be brought up by by her mother and and father. And unfortunately, um, her fa- family did not like Alistair Crowley at all. And um, I think they and others told Lola that she was very lucky to get away from her wicked father. You see, uh, his wife's father was a clergyman, uh, Reverend oh. Kelly, in Ca- Camberwell Vicarage in London. And, of course, would have obviously been quite uh, disturbed by uh, Crowley's um, not being a card-carrying Christian. <laughs> so I think that was a factor. Lola, he tried, he got back in touch with Lola indirectly in, in the 30s when she was uh, in her late teens, uh, in her 20s, sorry. And um, a friend tried to in, be a mediator between them, but she, she, I saw the letter she wrote back to Gerald York and she said, I have seen my father's books and I find them disgusting and uh, I don't want to know him. So she felt bitter, obviously. Um, oh, that's, and that's that's, that's one of the very that's a it's a sad thing. She died, I think, in 1993 in Reading. Uh, Lola did, um, and she she had no, nothing to do, as far as I know, with any of his belief system. You know, I think I think that was one of the pains that the Crowley bore very privately and never spoke to anybody about. And he never married again. Oh, he did. Yes, he did. He did. Oh, did he? He did, yes. He married, uh, uh, goodness, Maria de Miramar. <laughs> Very curious. Yes, he married her because he was advised by, by contact in England that he was kicked out of France. He wasn't kicked out. He, he, had his, he, had his, he had his right to be there, refused what was called a refus de séjour, um, because the, uh, somebody had gone uh, uh, who became his enemy. I've seen the paperwork and uh, went to the Sûreté in France and um, accused him 
of, uh, I don't know what specifically, but uh, being a troublemaker in Paris or something. And the police came around and they found a coffee making machine and they thought it was a, oh. a distilling heroin or something. So he was, he was accused. Yeah. Uh, so he, they, they cut short his video uh, schedule and uh, he was also uh, he was accused of being a German spy. That was another thing. And he, wanted, he, was, he was at the time living with this Nicaraguan lady, Maria de Marema. And uh, he, was to- he was told that she could only, um, I don't know what that is. Uh, she was, he was told that she could only enter England if they were married. So they went to Leipzig and got married. It, the marriage did not last long at all. Uh, Crowley wasn't interested in bourgeois institutional marriage himself. And he presumed well, his he- wife understood that. <laughs> Well, that was those weren't the the only places that he was kicked out of. Though he was, well, he left rapidly. Was it China? No, China. Where he he was attacked by Calcutta. Calcutta, yeah. Attacked by in by dacoits in Calcutta, and um, to defend himself against his gang who got him in a got him with uh, uh, in an alleyway. Um, he had his uh, revolver with him, and he shot one, and the bullet went into the guy behind him. They then were taken to hospital, where they confessed to, to attacking a, a, a Westerner in the streets of Calcutta, back streets of Calcutta. Uh, he went to a lawyer and said, what do you think I should do? And he then went to an, a very, very senior lawyer, and they said, well, the fact is, at the moment, the Viceroy of India is having a trying to prove to the Hindus that he's as severe with with English and Western criminals as he is with Hindus. So he said, what will happen is they'll probably, you'll, you'll get off because you're innocent, but he said they'll find all sorts of legal ways to keep you coming back to court uh, for, the politi- for political reasons. Uh, so Crowley thought, well, I can either, he said, he said, what's the point of going to court if I'm not going to get convicted? <laughs> so he said to his wife, who just arrived with their baby, he said, um, you've, just, you've arrived just in time to see me hanged. And then he said, oh, what do you fancy? Walk across, do you want to walk across Persia or should we do China? And she said, darling, the, the walk will do us good. Let's go to China. So he walked oh, across God. China with his wife and baby. Another incredible adventure. <laughs> so he, he, he wasn't he kicked was... out of India, but he had to get out quick. He also had to get away from Berlin in 1931 because um, uh, the, the political thing was changing. Hitler was... Uh, very close to power at the time, and uh, the Germans w- were were getting close to realizing that he w- he'd been a spy against the Germans in the First World War, and he had to get out of Berlin quick. <laughs> so, quite well, an adventure. You know. Where did he end up? Well, he he, he I mean, I don't. I, I, who knows? <laughs> if you mean. Where did he spend the last bit of his life? He was living in he was living in London during World War Two, where he was okay. he was entertaining American American troops who were coming over, especially um, Grady McMurtry, who came from California, and uh, mm-hmm. it was very keen on Alex Crowley's writings. And then he moved out to an inn. Then he spent his last couple of years, uh, two last two years, at a boarding house in Hastings, in Sussex, which had been set up for uh, old theatrical people in their old age or uh, got hard times and he lived in this little country, little country house on the, on the outskirts of Hastings uh, where he died wow. of myocardial yeah, he, he died of bronchitis in the very tough winter of 1947 
and was cremated in, in, in Brighton. And his ashes were taken to the Hamptons in the United States, where <laughs> Carl Germer buried them under buried them under a tree in the Hamptons and then came to dig them up because he was moving to California and couldn't find them. <laughs> now, it's very oh strange because Crowley, Crowley in 1907 had written a poem um, called The Poet, and, and the line was, Bury me in a nameless grave. I came from God, the world to save. And, in fact, his grave is nameless. Nobody knows what happened to the ashes. <laughs> but they were deposited in the United States. In the United States, which is very interesting. No, I, I just in in awe of first of all the the journey he was on, and secondly, I mean, he his family money um, financed a lot of it, and then his poetry financed a lot of it too. Um, it would have been nice so, if his poetry. No, no, his poetry didn't finance it. His poetry cost him his fortune because he had all his, his poems before the First World War he paid for to be published in beautiful bindings following the example of William Morris and the Kelmscott Press and they were all beautiful uh-huh. productions which he paid for he had Zainsdorf do the binding and the design and uh, he, he lost by, by 1913 just before First World War uh, all he had was his uh, house in Scotland, his estate which was heavily mortgaged and which he lost that during the war. So by 1920, he was practically penniless. And he wow. went on for the next 27 years, 27 years in, in, in very great financial problems and still didn't give it. <laughs> the only job he ever had, where paid, anyone paid him, was a job running a magazine in New York in 1917, 1918. Wow. But he's, you know, the, the thing is, I what happened to to the to the organization that 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 he created? Um, oh well, that's still going, still going. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there are that, two aspects to it. There are two aspects to his organization. There's the the Ordo Templi Orientis, which was fa- founded by. Uh, three, well, an Austrian and, and uh, two Germans, and uh, that was found, founded in. Well, it doesn't. It was founded as an idea in the yeah. 1890s, early 1900s, but it doesn't become anything until Crowley starts writing the rituals in 19, uh, beginning in 1912, and then it, it starts. And, it, and that's more the social organisation. That and that's run from New York today. Uh, Ordo Templi Orientis. The other organization was the teaching organization, which is Astrum Argentium, the Order of the Silver Star, um, which is purely for teaching, and there's no social aspect to it at all. He didn't want a social aspect, because he said that's what happened to the Golden Dawn, is people stop getting jealous of each other and infighting Uh and sex split and all this. The AA is is you're taught from one to another, uh, directly between one person and another, and there's no... It's not about getting badges or certificates. Uh, you've got to actually do the work. <laughs> so I yes. just think the take-up of that is relatively small. Well, the the rituals that that were involved are they meditative type of rituals? Are they what kind of rituals were they connected? Well, they're auto templi the auto templi orientis still performs what's called the Gnostic Mass which was the name Crowley gave to a piece of writing he 
uh, put together in Moscow in 1913, um, before the French, uh, before the Russian Revolution, and um, was a sort of it's it has aspects of masonry in it. The Ordo Templi Orientis is basically a Masonic order that's been developed in the way that the okay. ancient and accepted rite is is old is regular masonry but developed to 33 degrees. Uh, the people who founded the Ordo Templi Orientis wanted to set up a, an, a Masonic academy which would include all degrees possible within the whole Masonic system and then some okay. extras as well. Um, so the Gnostic Mass is formed. Now, other than that, that's the only ritual uh, in, in formal terms that's performed in the Ordo Templi Orientis, uh, as, which is you know, a systematic ritual, takes a certain amount of time to produce. Other than that, the ritual, ritual magic, if you want to learn that, is, it tends to be done uh, in a solitary manner by the individual. So there, there, are, there, are, there are many, many books by Crowley for performing certain uh, rites, which are highly, mostly based on internal meditative practices. And just, just for those who I have found of late that um, terms that that uh, <clears throat> terms that I that, that I understand and, and um, as far as I think I do, um, there, there are words that are thrown around that I don't think people understand what they mean, and gnosis is one of them. And um, gnosis. You wanna, yeah. Gnosis, yeah. Um, it, it yeah. just well, gnosis, gnosis. People, yeah. people use the term but don't know what it means. So can you kind of expand upon that so people will know what we're talking about? Yeah. Uh, a Gnostic is somebody who takes the path of gnosis. Gnosis is a Greek word, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis. It's the origin of our word knowledge. If you think of our English word knowledge, K is the same as the Greek gamma. So we have, why is knowledge spelt with a K at the beginning? Because it's based on the Greek gn sound, like that, which is, uh-huh. can you hear that? Gnosis, gnosis, okay. So that's how, how we get knowledge, right? So it means knowledge, and it can mean knowledge of, uh, in the ordinary sense of knowledge of facts or information, but it's particularly what you call spiritual knowledge, which is a direct engagement of uh, the self or the soul with a spiritual truth. So it's a transformative, liberating, spiritually liberating form of knowledge, and it is that which wakes up a person from, a, from being bound to the world and the material dimension, and an awakening to the spiritual nature of the person. We talk a lot about spirituality and spiritual, but I I don't think uh, we're very clear about this at all, which is one of the reasons I've written a lot of my books are are exactly to put this, make this very clear, what we're talking about is spiritual knowledge. You have a spiritual knowledge tradition in every religion. There is, in in Hinduism, you have what's called jnana, same root again, J-N, like K-N or G-N, jnana yoga, uh, which is the spiritual knowledge direction of, of yoga. You have Zen in Buddhism. Zen, again, is about an awakening, and about a specific awakening of the spiritual uh, being of the person. In Judaism, you have Kabbalah, uh, which is 
the spiritual tradition which has been received and passed down as it were in secret or discreetly esoteric in that sense in other words it's there if you're ready to receive it but if you're not it isn't there uh, mm-hmm. and you have it in hermetism in, in paganism you have hermetic gnosis in the hermetic tradition and uh, you have it in Islam with Sufism uh, the Sufis who uh, believe in the alfana the passing away of the ego and the spiritual realization of and the word they have is marifa which is the mm-hmm. Arabic word for knowledge of a spiritual kind. So all the religions have this Gnostic side to them, but all the authoritarian aspects of the religion have always suppressed it. They don't like it because a person who has spiritual gnosis doesn't need the priest, the imam, the bishop, you see, or the rabbi. You've found the essence. If you've got to a stage of gnosis, you're, you're already in the uh, fraternity. You can't be taken. It's a spiritual thing. You don't need to wear a badge. You don't need to wear silly clothes. You don't have to wear a hat. You don't have to have your hair cut in a particular way. You don't have to go around saying, I'm a member of this. It's something inward. And you'd be wise mm-hmm. to keep it quiet. Uh, say nothing about it. And live it. Live it out. Live out the consequences of this gnosis, the spiritual knowledge you have. Uh, you don't need to shout the cause of it, and you must never uh, be foolish enough to think that you can talk somebody else into it. As Crowley once wrote, he said, talking to a man about uh, about mysticism is like making him drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A person, must, a, person must have, a person must have a thirst and a hunger for it and find, them, find it for themselves. If they want it handed on a plate, they're not going to get anything because you're not talking about a material thing. And it isn't simply facts. Uh, There are ideas connected with it. uh, But understanding those ideas is very different to speaking about them. Uh, I know this because I studied theology, uh, and in theology we talk a great deal about God and Christ and all the rest of it. But uh, we, we, generally speaking, the level of understanding is very poor. But you've got to start somewhere. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think what what gets in the way most often is that people, you know, they are looking for the way instead of their way. And, yes, I think you know, that's by true. Th- yeah. So, you know, it, it's kind of like, I know the way, follow me. Well, you know, you don't really know where you're going. So how can you lead anybody yeah, in, anyway? Yeah, right. Right, right. In the, Gnostic, in the Gnostic writings, one of the phrases attributed to the, what they call the living Jesus uh, is, knock, on, knock upon yourself as a door. Beautiful. And that's what frustrates so many people. It's like, you know, you say, go within. You say, find it myself. I don't know where to look. And, and, and it's kind of like you have, to, you have to ask the question and answer it yourself. There's there's no way someone can tell you what to do. Um, often it's a, you know a, a tool to find that way is meditation. Find a form of meditation that will help to lead you where you need to go. But um, that's work, and people don't really today like to work. No, well, and uh, if you don't work, you 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 become atrophied. Uh, your muscles, um, the mind is a muscle. It needs exercise. And uh, it's all very well getting building up in the gym, 
you you can do the you can do the vehicle some benefit, but what's the vehicle for? What is it? What is yeah. the body, the temple of? So if you do work, if you don't work on the on the spirit, uh, the rest of it is is purely is it's like being a packet with nothing in it, so a glass with no wine, um, a, a book with no pages, a, a man with no soul. Beautifully put. Um, so, so this journey of yours has taken you to write a gazillion books. Um, Not that many. <laughs> it looks yes. like that many when you when you see them listed, and and you know all focusing on this same philosophy. I think um, you know there there are a number of them on Crawley, and. And and you know, oh, I love this. You you've got a a, a Guru Dev book too. Um, again, spiritual magicians. Um, I think that that people just don't understand that that magic and magician can can deal with intuition, can deal with inspiration, can deal with with all sorts of um, you know clairaudience, clairsentience, clair all all of the clairs. And it's involved with dowsing and scrying and, I mean, all, all sorts of wonderful tools are connected to it the more you get into yourself and, and the more that you investigate uh, a, what it is, there you is know, a path, your yeah, journey. Yeah, yeah. There is a path for everybody. There is a path for everybody if they wish to, you know, that's inconsist- that is consistent, that is in line with the gifts you've been given. That's Crowley's watchword. Do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. Not do as thou wilt, do as you, do as you like. But find your true uh-huh. will and do it with your whole being. You know. Well, I, I think what... Or as they what, used to say, do your thing. Yes. <laughs> find your thing and do it. You know. well, do your thing, man. So, so very true. And, and so much of what he did is so appropriate for today for the individual. And, you know, I don't say anybody has to replicate his journey because that would be impossible. But but so much more is available today for people. I mean, it's been made so much easier for us because there is so much that is so easily available, but it's a matter of taking the time to practice and to pursue it. And um, well, the, the, inter- I, I the internet is a shop window. It won't, yeah, the internet is a shop window. Uh, but uh, look at, looking in the window and actually doing something are two do- very different things. Yeah. It is, and, and I, I feel today that that we aren't set up to to commit ourselves to a lot of the study as he did. I mean, like I said, he jumped in the the deep end, you know, feet first, and and immersed himself in it and. Became to I guess it, it's sort of like when he had absorbed so much that he knew he knew he had to look for some other way to know himself better, and and each of these organizations and societies opened another door for him, another portal, if you will, to to a a higher consciousness, and and yes, it, yes. it appears that he constantly was seeking though. That he never said, "I have arrived." Oh gosh, no! You, you know, somebody once said, 
Yeah, he was in a room once with uh, with with somebody he knew, and this man referred to him says, um, "Well, master," said the man to oh. Crowley, and he said, "Crowley looked round. He said, I see no masters here." Yeah. There's a well, the nice joy of it all. The the, I think the joy of it all, is that once you feel you have arrived somewhere you realize you have just gone back to square one for another journey. And mm, very true. Every time, like, uh, T.S. Eliot. Yeah, and, and every time in, in, the, in the time that I have been on this journey, every time I kind of sit back and say, well, let's, let's try to put this together and make sense of it, I find that my puzzle has not got enough pieces and I have to keep going and looking for more pieces to fill in the puzzle. And the puzzle will never be complete until I pass on. And maybe then it will be left incomplete too. So so it's a matter of looking for your puzzle pieces in, in many different places in many different ways. And, and quite often they come in, in unexpected packages. And he had such a joy of learning, such an intensity about you know, where he was going with his searching, that it it amazed me. And then then he would take breaks and he would climb a mountain or two and and or or seclude himself to to or write more poetry yeah. or fall in love and or out of love. love. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm, yeah I mean, he, he, was, um, he, he was not possessive. No, and he had... I think one of the, he had... That was one of the great strangely, things about him. He didn't... He didn't he didn't try and possess these women, you know, uh, that he met. He had he had some remarkable affairs, and he sometimes even attributed his books to them. You can't mm-hmm. imagine many writers doing that. And uh, no, in a way, you know, he studied. Well, he would study also through his relationships. That was another way he would learn. You know, and uh, some of these women didn't want to let him go. This was the thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, let him go. That, 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 well, he then was. Then he would have to remind them. He was. He was from from just what I've read of him through your book. He was very charismatic. Um, oh yes. You know, in some ways, almost Rasputinist. Um, although Rasputin had a dark way of doing things, but but. There was power there, and I think there's power here, but it's not power to manipulate. It's, it's, it's power to expand, and, and I think that's what, that's what people miss is that he wasn't out to control anyone or anything except himself as best he could. Yeah, I mean, and in is, that, yeah, if you, people, have said, people have said Crowley believes in a master race, you know, and they immediately think of the SS Hitler and this sort of thing. No, uh-huh. his master race is 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 a is a pe- people who've mastered themselves. You know, that's the mastery. Uh, he hated <laughs> Hitler, Hitler's whole concept because he re- Hitler, like all these dictators, wants imitations of himself. He wants people to surrender their knowledge of their own will. He wants them to give give that up. You know, uh, to to identify themselves with the flag and all the rest of it. Um, you know, in Crowley, you're, you, you are, you are, the individual is the sovereign, and anyone who rules, rules only as an expression 
of the individuality of a person. That's the, there is a political dimension to the Crowleyan doctrine, which has hardly been explored and is very difficult to work out in practice for obvious reasons, given the, the nature of the political process as we understand it. But he was a bit uh -huh. like John Lennon, who said, um, I think John Lennon said, if somebody, from, whether they're from the left or whether they're from the right, says, you know, um, we have the power and this sort of thing, or give me your, give me your power. Said, no, you have the power. You have the power. You don't give it, don't have to give it to these people who want it. Yeah. You know, when, so they, he... when they, when they, rec when they recognize your power fully for what it is and serve every individual, the, the cause of the individual, then they are entitled to some support. But so, but so long as somebody tries to impose their will upon other people, they are not doing uh, the thelemite, the thelemite uh, good work, um, which is the realization of the individual will, the fullest realization. You know, not everyone's going to make that. We know that. As, as, as some people are quite happy to take up a service role. Um, but everyone, you know, everyone will find their true will, whatever it might be. If it's serving, it's serving. If it's writing books or whether it's working and working, making um, clothes or whatever, whatever it is, you can find through everything you do is a medium for self-understanding. It doesn't have to necessarily relate to it directly. You can learn infinite things from walking down the street if you concentrate on it in a particular way and become more aware of what you're doing. Uh, everything is a teacher, really. The world is a book. Uh, that's what they used to, the old mystics talked about, the Liber Mundi, the book of the world. When you get the idea that everything has a capacity well, to, uh, to reveal to you, it always helps he, if it's not said, too noisy, of course. Yes. <laughs> he set up a school, and what was he teaching in the school, or his philosophy? Was he teaching... Hmm methods to seek was he teaching i mean mm, he was teaching, trying to... yeah just teaching okay yeah well i mean he wasn't... in the book in yeah in the book you've got a, a whole thing about what you what you what he, he, he ta actually taught people the main the main a large part of it was uh the stages of yoga towards samadhi that was the main thing because he identified samadhi union with the highest with what the old magicians called um, the knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel. So once you were in mm -hmm. touch with your uh, true will, as a lovely expression, the true will, as opposed to the mere willfulness or wanting or desires that people yeah. have, um, uh, once you're in touch with that, you can then become your self-teacher. So that's the main method. And not everybody wants to do ceremonial magic and focus their will through evoking or invoking powers from their subconscious, whatever that might mean. Uh, so, some, some people will, will, will find their true will through designing airplanes and uh, uh -huh. serving in that way. You know? So uh, there, the teaching is to get you going. His, and his teaching methods were to set people on the path. He didn't want people who clung to him. Uh, I think this is often the case of a true spiritual master. He's, he's, True spiritual master is usually saying something like, look, get away and do it. Stop bothering me. You know, <laughs> you've got more power than you realize. 
I'll, I'll write, wow. keep a book, tell me what you do. He would, he would ask them to keep what he called the magical diary, and they would record their practices honestly and their dreams and uh, where they thought their spirit was heading and what they'd actually achieved in terms of yoga. And he would then write comments about it, of how they might improve it, or whether he thought they were perhaps had got the wrong idea and things like this. So he, he would try to gut. But, you know, I, I'm going to put this simply, and I, much more than this, and I think your audience will be exhausted. Um, his, he had what he called the concise compendium of initiated instruction in yoga, and it goes like this. Sit down, shut up, stop thinking, get out. Perfect. Perfect. Good, good way to go out, don't you think, on this conversation? <laughs> I would say so. I would say so. Um, I, I, I do want to touch a little bit about how um, all the negative philosophies out there began because I think it's important for people to understand how those rumors of negative nature hit and and have been and of course every you could know we, could we could we could Barbara Barbara could we save that for another conversation uh, we absolutely really, can we absolutely can and I think that you're you're right that that was the perfect way to end the interview because um he was an amazing man, and I, and I just want people to um, give it a chance and check out his 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 poetry, his books, his journey, and understand um, that there was a great deal of positive energy here, and and it was not um, a negative journey at all. And I want to thank you so much for being here because I've been very much looking forward to this, and hopefully I can get you back again sometime soon. It'd be a great pleasure, yes. I'd love to, I'd love to talk to you again, yes. Okay, fan- so it's an fantastic. En- it's an endlessly interesting subject, but, you know, you, you, you can go, you can go too, you have too much <laughs> of anything. Yes, I don't want to overwhelm them. I want to make them curious and, and go out and investigate for themselves. So, so well, on that note, that. Oh, oh, I <laughs> certainly hope so. And on that note, I want to thank everybody for listening. I look forward to your coming back again and being here tomorrow night and then next Monday and Tuesday. Mark and I look forward to stretching your minds and hopefully enlightening you to a certain degree or a great degree or make you curious so that you start a journey of your own. That said, Thanks for listening, everybody. Good night.